Hi, and welcome to Captivated Audience. My name is Marie Lundberg, and I'm joined as always by Sam Sheen, my friend and professional colleague. Hi, Sam. How are you doing today? I am doing absolutely fantastic, Marie. How about you? I'm doing super. Thank you. I'm really delighted that we have a returning guest with us today. It's Eric Sohn, a sanction expert. How are you doing today, Eric? I'm doing wonderful. It's a, it's a wonderful day here in southern New Jersey. So can you just remind people uh, what your current role is and where you work? They call me global market strategist and product director for Dow Jones Risk and Compliance. And I'm basically the sanctions subject matter expert, as well as I uh, product support. They, I write lots of articles. I speak at conferences, webinars, stuff like that. If they need someone to sound smart, they ask me. And you run Mr. Watchlist, right? Yes, as well as my podcast, Mr. Watchlist Designation. So there is this interesting enforcement decision that was published by OFAC on the 15th of March. Do you know anything about that case? Oh, yes, I do. The unit control enforcement action stoked a lot of discussion, partly because I will tell you the truth, it wasn't really well written. And, And had it been written a little bit better, it would have been clearer why they were doing what they were doing. Here's the basic deal. This company, Unit Control, they make instrumentation and controls and, and switches. For, it says for boilers, air pressure switches, process controls, whatever a process control is. And they ended up making 21 exports that ended up in Iran. The problem was that they didn't do it directly. They did it indirectly. They didn't know that it was going to end up in Iran. Actually, of the 21, 19, they had no idea. But OFAC says they should have known. There were a series of things that happened over a period of years that OFAC thinks they should have been able to connect the dots. The way it's written, it does highlight the need to log anytime something happens that even if nothing becomes of it, if there's a nexus to sanctions, you need to keep track of it so that if something happens down the road, you can then connect the dots. So, Eric, I read the decision, and I perhaps agree with you on on how it could have been written more explicitly. Can you get us to the detail on what actually got them in the crosshairs of the U.S. sanction regulators in this case? They ended up making 21 shipments of air pressure switches that ended up in Iran. But I'm also now going to pivot to the next enforcement action at Nordgas SRL, which is an Italian distributor that happened on the 26th. Unicontrol had a couple of European trade partners, and Nordgas was one of them. In 2010, Nordgas said to Unicontrol, we love your products. And you know what? We've got some people over in Iran that would like them too. Could you be our supplier? And Unicontrol, of course, said, no, you can't. In 2012, 2013, Unicontrol goes to a number of trade shows, and they see Iranian clients. Now, of course, these are European trade shows. Back then, the EU wasn't particularly strict in terms of going after Iran. So not all that unusual. 2014, one of the trade partners, don't know which one, but it's probably not Nordgas, signed a services agreement with Unicontrol saying, here are the list of countries that we can resell your products into. And one of them was Iran. And Unicontrol never went and fixed that agreement. 2016 and 2017, more trade shows. Again, at that point, the JCPOA is in force. So again, not unusual. But in 2016, Nordgas tells Unicontrol, oh, please don't send this latest shipment because we're having some internal problems that we couldn't be able to get it out right now to our our end user. So Unicontrol says, well, we could ship it directly. Well, why can't we ship it directly? And Nordgas says, Nordgas says, no, 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 please don't do that. And Unicontrol left it at that. 
Actually, Norgas had told Unicontrol that the end user was in Italy. No, end user was in Iran. Finally, in 2017, Nordgas told Unicontrol, your products have this made in the USA label on them. Could you please remove it? Because, and I swear to the heavens above, they said our Iranian end user would have problem taking in US origin goods. Even then, Unicontrol, yes, they were smart enough. They went to outside counsel to ask, but they still shipped the, they still shipped the goods to Nordgas. But here's the thing, though. Do you hold that 2010 outreach because it was rebuffed against them when the actual violations didn't start till 2013? And the next thing involving Nordgas that was a real red flag was 2016. Yes, you should have a CRM and you should have a training that says every time something comes up that even if it's, quote, normal, if it involves sanctions, you have to log it. Hmm. But absent that, but absent that is a six-year gap. You know, is that reasonable to have to remember that six years ago someone asked you something and you said no, and then nothing became of it for six years? So what do we do with this, though? I mean, this sounds like, if I can shorten this all, shoulda, woulda, coulda, by way of rationale. I mean, what do you think about the reasoning here? Is this like a one-off case, or is this is this sort of been this evolving shoulda, woulda, coulda approach by the American sanction regulator? I think number one is very much like some of the items that involved, uh, the cases that involved subsidiaries. The concept of you need to identify patterns is a good one to make. It's a good learning point for everyone. Was this the best case to make that point? No, it really wasn't. Now, that being said, you have similar cases in different areas where there were, in theory, available ways to capture information and track it that they could have but didn't. You could have noted this and kept a log. And then every time someone said Nordgast, you could have said, oh, they did this, they did this. That seems a problem. A good example, just a quick example of that, is Apollo Aviation. Apollo Aviation, they lease out aircraft engines, and their terms and conditions say our engines can't go into Iran. But they didn't conduct any oversight over what those lessees did in terms of subleasing. So an item went out, got sublet, ended up on a Sudanese Sudanese Airlines plane. And there were actually, there are logs that are kept for aircraft engines. So available data, but not managed. Same thing with the recent virtual currency stuff, where they had IP information, but didn't leverage it. But this goes above and beyond, I would say, right? Because now if you are an exporter of of goods, you have your resellers, and then you have your secondhand sellers as well. So this goes really further down the line, doesn't it? You are expected, honestly, from ultimate source, to ultimate destination to know what happens to the goods and services that are in your chain. It, that's, a, that's a real expectation. In 2017, when I was with ACAMS, we ran a symposium in Ireland and we brought along a speaker from a medical gas company. And she was talking about the controls they have in place to make sure they don't violate American sanctions. And she said, even when we get requests for repairs for the gas container componentry, we actually ask ourselves, how did it get into that country to begin with? And we will go through the chain to figure out even the smallest components, if there's any risk, they were transshipped, for example. So if that company figured out this is the way to go to reduce their risk, why are so many people still making the same mistake or is it a mistake? 
There's always a gap between the investigation and the actual enforcement action. So again, here, right, the last thing that happened was 2017. It's now 2021. So you always have to remember that time moves. And during that time where the investigation is going on, uh, regulations change, expectations change. The expectation that you learn as you're learning thing is today's expectation. Expecting that behavior is not unreasonable. The framework document talks about supply chain. The framework talks about suppliers and distributors, uh, and that's 2019. I mean, you said that they, you know, removed the labels made in the U.S., right? They were asked to, yes. Or asked to, at least, yes. So do you think that there will be a lot of other companies removing, you know, the labels where it actually has been manufactured? Proactively, I would say if they're smart, they won't. Uh, that would then mean they wouldn't hear the signal that would tell them, oops, I have a potential sanctions nexus. Honestly, if I were an American company, I'd put millions of made in the USA stickers on these things so that if someone wanted to send it to the wrong place, maybe someone would come back and say, could you remove those? And that would tell me, oops, I, maybe I have a problem here. Let's Let's talk a little bit about human rights. Over the last eight months here, the sanction program has been used to designate over 70 persons which have been connected to alleged human rights abuses. And that includes people in Venezuela, Pakistan, North Korea, but also not sort of the hot spots for sanctions, so to speak. They've been linked to persecution of minority groups, including Chechen officials who tortured and murdered LGBT people, Myanmar officials, Rohingya repression, and so forth. But most recently, we saw a real coordinated effort in relation to some human rights sanctions in relation to China. Can you tell people a little bit about those? As, as people know, there is allegedly the Chinese have been taking the Uyghur ethnic minority, which they're a Muslim minority group, and have been cordoning them off in the Xinjiang region of China. It's basically it's a modern day re-education camps. But as part of their re-education, they're also doing work for and producing goods, cotton, and uh, there's actually a whole list of them. I know cotton and these are computer products. There's, there's a bunch of them. The thing of choice generally outside the United States has been asset freezes. And again, you can go after individuals such as the government officials that are part of this. You can go after the companies that are basically are, that are using the forced labor. So XPCC, the Xinjiang Production and Construction Company, I think, company or core. And again, that just means that if, if you get shipments or you get reimbursements or from those firms, you know, obviously you freeze those. Those are, those are pretty good. The other thing, of course, is you can bar the products and anything derived from those products. And in the United States, you have these things called withhold release orders and forced labor findings. Basically, there's a different level of proof. There's irrefutable proof that they're being produced with forced labor. It's a, for, it's a forced labor finding. Everything else where, in theory, they can dispute it is a withhold release order. It basically means it gets to the border. It can be prevented from coming into the United States. Not just Xinjiang cotton, but Bangladeshi clothing made from Xinjiang cotton. About one third of all of these orders are from China. Uh, 34 of them, if you include both categories. The next largest country on the list is, oh, sorry, two thirds of that. Malaysia with three. That's a good way of you know, preventing raw goods or an intermediate goods from getting into your country. If, I think that's also a very public and very effective way of making people comply and not try to get around things because those things will get stopped at the border. So these kind of sanctions, then they work? It's good to have a number of tools. So for example, if you bar the goods, then you don't necessarily have to identify all the companies and all the directors. 
and also also enough to know about the supply chain. And you know, and when you think about it, right, sanctions are one of three things. It's either embarrassing them and basically wagging your finger at them. It's making it harder for them or more expensive for them to do what they're doing, to continue doing that. That's what you do with narcotics and terrorism. Or it gives them incentive to change their ways. I'm not sure where these fall into, to be perfectly frank. Mm-hmm. Um, I, know, I, I know that certain things do work. So, for example, right now, Myanmar, you talked about Myanmar, Burma slash Myanmar. Well, the U.S. just went after yesterday, Myanmar Gem Enterprise, I think. It's the state-owned company that does the export of all precious gems from, from Myanmar. Is it effective? Yes, it's effective. You know how I know it's effective? Because in 2014, Myanmar exported $12 billion of precious gems. Last year, $273 million. In fact, since 2016, they have not been above a half a billion any, in any given year. If, you, if your listeners want to know where to find information like that, there's a great website called the Observatory of Economic Complexity. OEC.world, which will let you show exports and imports by products and by and by counter country. So you can really see how the sanctions that the U.S. put on precious stones from Myanmar, because in 2014, that was 49.2% of all their exports was precious gems. The current sanctions, human rights related, involving China have been really coordinated. We've been watching the news coming out, the different countries coming on board with that coordinated approach. And that seems to work really well. What happens for financial institutions and everybody else who's got to screen and comply with sanctions when you start to see countries or regions issue their own human rights specific sanctions, right? So ones that aren't universally recognized or they're not necessarily endorsed by the other regions, right? Isn't that going to create operationally some challenges? What makes sanctions effective is leverage. If Albania issues a sanction on a person in... Okay, hang on a second, though. I can easily hear my head engineer who's going to build me this compliance tech say to me, why do I care if Albania is going to sanction Zimbabwe? Where does it say in the law that we our screening tool needs to screen Albania's list to a certain extent, it's an actuarial equation. What's the volume I do with the affected country in terms of either a number of transactions, number, uh, amount of value? Do I have any important clients that have important business down there? Why do people deal with, with OFAC sanctions? Because they're afraid of their transactions being stopped. So there's the commercial aspect to it. And by the way, because you went through a correspondent, Maybe you lose that correspondent. I know a Vietnamese bank that lost their, their, their dollar correspondent because they were unable to identify that a five-person intellectual property law firm was owned by a Sudanese citizen back when there were real Sudanese sanctions. One of my very first clients when I did work for another firm was Bank Julius Baer in Zurich. And I said, well, why are you checking OFAC? You're in Switzerland. And why not just check SECO? And they said, because we're scared to death of losing our dollar correspondent, because we need foreign exchange, because that underlies international trade. But what do you think, Marie? Like, so we've got we've got the might of the U.S. when we're talking about human rights specific sanctions. Do you really think people would be staying up overnight worrying about, say, regional human rights related sanctions? Like, I mean, do you think other businesses are going to care, Marie, if the U.K. starts putting people on their human rights sanction list that nobody else has? No, but that's just me being realistic. I would love to say yes, of course. So, Eric, 
I'm going to play the devil's advocate here a bit, so please bear with me, okay? I will try to put this into an operational point of view. Let's pretend that we are a small bank within the European Union. Corporate clients, private clients, and we do transact in various currencies, including the US dollars. We don't screen domestic payments. We trust and rely upon the other banks who also adhere to the Wolfsburg guidance on sanction screening and other perhaps more local agreements between the banks. We might even work in a jurisdiction where the local regulator has issued absolutely no guidance at all, not even for the European sanctions. So, cross-border transactions and transactions in other currencies, we trust and rely upon our correspondent bank to do that. Getting buy-in from the management or board, or which, frankly, the regulators, to get more data and to screen for customers with a US nexus. Well, talk about being caught between a pillar and a post. This is for this side of the ocean what the debate feels like, doesn't it? Because there are people who will ask you the basic question, which list should I be screening? Which ones do I need to screen? Which ones do I not need to screen? Look, do I need hundreds of people, don't they, Marie, to just clear through alerts? And it doesn't become an exercise of, of logic. Exactly, Sam. Customer screening, names against names to simplify it. Most of the financial institutions got that down with tools and lists using the client information from CRM system to match what perhaps are the applicable sanction lists, right? Screening your customers' customers or even the business partners to a corporate client, in this case, the European reseller in the Unicontrol case that you talked about, Eric, and their payments. That would require either massive resources, people, or very advanced tools and a state-of-the-art set of internal KYC data. Otherwise, the risk here is that such a case would probably never cross the desk of an AML or sanctions investigator at a bank. But the fact is that you at least have to think about it. Certainly, you can look at Maersk, right? Maersk looked at the situation regarding uh, shipping with Iran, and they said, you know what? We're going to turn off our Iranian business because we value the business we do with the United States more. And yes, if your stuff is all within the euro zone, and of course, none of none of the people you deal with are, say, distributors that sell outside the euro zone, because you only deal with people in a certain area, and they're all personal accounts, and none of them are have international sales, great. You, in theory, could do things in a different way. Technically, it says everything gets done real time, but if everything is small retail payments... Maybe you do an end-of-day report that does the screening, and then you review the report as opposed to do real-time stuff because the, the real likelihood is low. Or maybe you do statistical sampling of your real-time payments. Again, because on a risk-based basis, that seems to be a better balance between the actual risk and the cost. Thank you, Eric. Well, sanctions and sanctions compliance for sure is a different beast. Let's agree upon that. Well, can I get you to give us any final tips for those who work in our community, having on their table everything from fraud detection to AML investigations, sanction screening alerts, SARS filing, and FSA reporting? And administering the COVID test. You have to, don't forget that. They, they administer <laughs> the COVID test, too. I guess you, if you're sitting at a firm that is not the largest in the world and has limited and more limited business, ask yourself the following question. If, in fact, I don't check this and something got through, what is the worst that would happen? What would be the impact on my business? So, for example, in most cases, a transaction gets blocked. In most cases, you have to make the customer whole. That would be it. Probably outside the United States, maybe the UK, 
maybe you lose a correspondent. And on that note, Eric, it is always a pleasure catching up with you as a fellow sanctions geek. I really appreciate you making the time. Thank you, Sam. And thank you, Marie. It's, It's always great to be here. Excellent. And if any of you out there have any ideas for future podcasts, topics you'd like us to cover, or if you'd even like to come and take part, you can reach out to us directly on our website, captivatedaudience.eu, or you can just pop us a message on LinkedIn on our dedicated LinkedIn page. I hope you're all doing well. Fingers crossed for all of you that you'll be vaccinated soon. But until then, stay safe and we'll see you the next time around.